such great things happen by taking a chance, right? So my three points of advice to, to anybody are going to be really like find your passion, like figure out what you want to do. You got to be the you got to want to be the best of the world to succeed at anything you want, right? So find your passion, invest in yourself, right? So you need to be in charge of your own career development. Like don't outsource your career development to your manager, right? It's more important to you than it is to your manager how you succeed. And last and most important, get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of Scott Ernst, today's guest. Uh, Scott is the recently appointed CEO of Drift. Uh, Scott's also an OG Boston entrepreneur. He was part of the founding management team of Compete back in the 2000s. He spent some time uh, as CEO of, of companies out in San Francisco like Tubular Labs, had a stint in Tokyo as CEO of Macromill, which he helped through an IPO. Uh, so just an absolute, um, you know, wealth of knowledge and, and really global experience sort of at the intersection of market research, commerce and technology over the last few decades. Uh, so I had a great conversation with Scott here and just really excited to share it with the community. Uh, enjoy. Thanks. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach's for video here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with Scott Ernst, the CEO of Drift. Hey, Scott. Hey, Zach. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to see you. Uh, we, we got to chat a little bit pre-podcast, so I've got to see your face for a few minutes here. We haven't chatted in what feels like a couple of years, but in sort of pandemic times, things sometimes feel like a month and sometimes feel like 10 years. Uh, but but kind of lose how, all waypoints of time, right? Like I really do. Like back in the old days, we say, "Hey, dude, I saw you at that conference." Like, yeah, we had a great time, and now it's it all kind of runs together. Yeah, and it's like last time I saw you, I may have been sitting in my house in the same spot I'm sitting right now, and I don't know when that was. Uh, for for listener, I think a lot of listeners are going to see like this episode, and say they're going to know drift, they're going to know conversational marketing. Um, they may know may may know you, and they maybe read the Boston article about your appointment or some other media coverage. But just for listeners to kind of ground them in like present day, can you share a bit about the your role today as sort of relatively recent, uh, recently appointed CEO of Drift? Yeah, great. No, so um, you know I wake up every day thinking I have the greatest job in the world, right? So I get to be the CEO of this amazing company called Drift and get to take over from a guy that I've known for 20 plus years, David Cancel, and had this relationship over time. So, you know, I got the the baton handed to me in June of this year uh, and just having a blast, right? So helping Drift scale to the next level and take all of the goodness that has been so much a part of what the company has built in the seven or eight years that we've been around and really kind of take it to the next, you know, the next phase of our growth. And, you know, a lot of good stuff going on at Drift, a lot of good work to be done. And I am just having a blast every single day. 
That's awesome. And as we kind of get into the podcast a bit, we're going to go back in time, kind of talk about your your childhood a bit. We'll talk about when you met David Cancel and some of those early startup days in Boston. And you've had some early startup days in Boston, San Francisco, some interesting perspective there. Uh, but definitely, definitely looking to double click a little later on on some of the initiatives for drift uh in terms of and, and you've really piqued my interest free podcast sort of evolving beyond conversational marketing sort of the conversation cloud and really in integrating conversation into into crms and and i i love it. it it really speaks to me where drift is going sort of directionally um the idea of you know conversations and all the sort of micro bits and pieces of conversations that exist in sort of a you know customer life cycle um being embedded in in sort of and leveraged um, within a CRM makes a ton of sense. So I don't know if you want to comment on that a little. Think about your own life, right? Like everything starts with a conversation, every relationship (laughs) that you have, every business context that you do, it all starts with a conversation. So when we think about the B2B buying process, what we're really trying to do is humanize that, right? It's not businesses buying from businesses, it's people buying from people. So whether you're You know, you're working up the courage to ask your now wife to dance for the first time. That starts with a conversation, right? The first time you reach out to a company and want to inquire about their products, you you know, that's a conversation. So if we do our job right, we deliver the right experience at the right time with the right message. And really so that you never have to answer the same question twice. Now, that's that's a powerful thing. And we work every single day to deliver against that promise. Yeah, that's great. And I'm nodding my head over here because that's why part of the reason why Boston Speaks Up was started and, and you sort of get the, the authenticity of conversation, right? Is there's nothing like conversing with someone. And I, you know, I've been told over the years that my emails come across like pretty good, like in a tone of someone talking. And I think that's what makes a good email, right? For years, like we've all known like connecting with people, you know, through a email drip marketing campaign is to sound human and be authentic. But you know what the best way is to connect with people, have conversations with them. And I think that's why podcasts are really popular. I think there's an interesting analogy here is because, you know, it's just, it's, it's honest, true, authentic human dialogue. And I think in that human dialogue, you get, you get personal connection. Um, And what does every, and, and what does every brand in the world want? They want personal connection. So certainly it makes sense for for Drift to be, you know, evolving for, you know, more deep, deeper into that sort of customer relationship management stack. You don't have to assume intent when you can just ask. Yep. Like that's the shortest <laughs> right. path to the truth is asking. Yeah. And that gets delivered through a conversation. So yeah. All right. So, yeah. Let's do it. Let's dance. I'll ask, well, let me <laughs> ask you to dance. Uh, so, so let's go, let's go back in time. Uh, you, you're a Rhode Island boy. Um, where, where exactly did you grow up and sort of what was your childhood like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in a small town called Tiverton, Rhode Island, right? Which is down by Newport, kind of nestled over by Little Compton. And it is, dude, it is the classic example of small town USA, right? So in our town, I think we had one beach, one pizza shop and a liquor store, right? So it kind of gets a sense of the whole vibe. And, you know, sometimes it takes you to get away from that to realize just like what a special place that was. You know, but it was all around kind of, you know, family and we sailed in the summer and we went skiing in North Conway in the wintertime and, you know, all the time in between around youth sports. And for me, that was all around football. Right. So it was a great place to grow up. And, you know, the older you get and the more perspective you get, you you earn this appreciation for just 
how special this was. So in our town, like I'll fast forward a little bit, like so high school driving home, you know, late at night, you know, making your way home, you pass a police car on the way to your house, you would just floor it the rest of the rest of the way home because there was only one police officer in town. You're good. Right? That's like, the so one. You knew you were safe. Green light all the way home, you know, and you could you could make it. And you know, to some degree, because of that, I really wanted to kind of experience the urban lifestyle, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But you know, what a great compliment to that be the base, and you know, it, to some degree, kind of forms a lot of who you become, who you are, and who you become. That's cool. I, I actually went to Little Compton for the first time about a month ago. Flo's Clam Shack? Did you stop at Flo's on the way? I didn't. Um, I went to like some new, like, like kind of not too fancy, but kind of it was a it was a nice like brunch spot. Um, and then I went to a uh I was with my my brother-in-law, who actually is the um uh, the editor of this podcast and my sister. Um, they're married. They live down in Warwick now and they love, they love the little Compton area. We went to a vineyard. Sakonic? No, that would be in Milltown, but it's much higher end now than it used it to be. It was like, I mean, it was, I'm like, what a, and it's, there's not much going on. And it's funny. Cause actually, I mean, I know you're, you, you spent a lot of time in San Francisco. We'll talk about that later too. And I was like, it's not even dissimilar for like, when you're just like, I'm like, where am I right now? Like, I'm not far from Providence and I'm not far from Boston. Um, but it's like, it's, it's remote in like a beautiful way and it's coastal in a way that I, you know, I, I certainly love being coastal. So yeah, really, really neat. Um, neat Very areas like that, place. that Tiverton little, little Compton area is really cool. So curious, like what, you know, we, we, I'd love to dig in a little bit to, to your, you know, your relationship with your parents. I think, you know, both of which are first generation curious, like where they're, you know, where, where did they come from when they settled in, in Pittsburgh? And then love to hear a bit about, you know, your, your father, who by all accounts is an entrepreneur, and maybe it wasn't called it, called that back then, but would love to hear about sort of that influence growing up. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think a lot about my parents and the fact that they are first generation that emigrated from Europe and, and came to the U S and I remember very vividly stories from my grandmother about when she left Europe and put on a boat by herself and came with, you know, nothing in her pockets, but hope and a dream. And, you know, it sounds a little fanciful at this point, but you really get an appreciation for what an amazing journey that had been, right? And in her lifetime, uh, and she's long past, but, you know, she went, uh, she went from gas lights to a man on the moon, like gaslit lamps to a man on the moon. And we get hung up on, you know, our generation seeing such amazing change in the space of innovation. But again, here's a woman who, you know, got to, got to, got to see a man land on the moon. So like an amazing, amazing set of experiences. Um, and my dad, I think, you know, I, I think today he has a, you know, strong impact on me and, and who I've become. And I really think about him as being the epitome of a self-made man and what it meant to our family, very firsthand, what delivering against the American dream meant to our family. So he grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, my mom was from this area, from Southeastern Mass, or was 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 grew up here. Um, but he joined the Navy to get out of Pittsburgh. He joined the Navy without having ever seen the water, right? Never saw the ocean, right? And And just knew that he wanted a different kind of life for him than what he experienced with his family in in uh, in East Liberty of Pittsburgh, so he joined the Navy, um, did his tour of duty, learned a lot. I think there, kind of went out and went to an electronics company and kind of 
started that business and started like learning that industry and kind of learning his trade. And I remember very vividly, and this, he was in his thirties. He sat us down and said, I'm leaving this company and I'm going to start my own company and explain to us the risk that it meant. And, wow. and he put it in very near and dear terms. So when I was born, we were born in a three-decker tenement house in Fall River, Massachusetts, right? And my dad and from there moved to Tiverton, kind of up uptown, like yeah. moving to Tiverton. And he said, you know, if this doesn't work out, we may end up back on the third floor, you know, living on living with with your grandparents. And I had that very vivid, vivid memory. And for me, like the personification of my dad's work experiences, he would come home every year with a new uh, a new company car, right? And I would sit by the window because first day with a new car, we'd all go out for ice cream. Like, so that was a big day in our family. Like we'd go, we'd all go and celebrate together. And, and, and it was really kind of shocking to me to think about the fact that we're going to walk away from that stability because my dad had this idea of what he could, what he could make and what he could build. And we never went back to that third floor tenement. We never, we, my dad had created a company and an environment where he changed the life, certainly of our family, but changed the life of the people that he worked with at that point. And, and that has very much rubbed off on me, right? When I think about, you know, what my job is and what I, what we can do, we all connect to delivering against a company vision for lots of different things what it means for a client, what it means for you personally, what it means for your own career growth. And the connection that my dad made for me really early on is the opportunity to create life-changing experiences for people that you work with. And even today, that's how I connect to to what I can do and what we can do at Drift. How do we create life-changing experiences for people in the company whether you're a new grad coming in for the first time into the company or you're seasoned exec thinking about how does this create an opportunity for you to go do some of the things that um, you would otherwise want to do. So, you know, I think the impact of my father and my parents are still very much a part of me. My dad is now 82 and he works every single day, right? He's Doesn't, still at it. He's still at it, man. And, and you know, that's that's who he is, right? And there's And there's not a big separation between, you know, the professional man that my dad is in his personal life. And I think, again, that that's kind of rubbed off on me. That's cool. You familiar with the term like brain trust? Like yeah. kind of key circle. Like, it, Would you say your dad, I mean, your dad's certainly in your brain. Is he like your, or, or is he like your consigliere? How, how often do you talk to your dad? Like, like, do you guys chat pretty regularly? We chat pretty regularly. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, um, I think he is right. Like the, you know, the first thing you do when you succeed and the first thing that I, the first person I want to talk to when I succeed and the first person I want to talk to when I fail is my dad. Yeah. Right. And, um, that's, and cool. that's, that's a powerful person. So, you know, he left with me this lesson that, you know, if you've got passion about something and you're committed, you can make these, these life-changing possibilities for, for you and, and arguably more important the people around you. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, what a profound impact. And I, I, I love the, the impact it has and sort of the way that you sort of foster and, and build culture and, and kind of provide professional development. Like what that that's, that's really interesting. What's also interesting is he has been, is an entrepreneur. 
um, and he had that profound impact on you early on. Although what's interesting is talk a little bit about the first career you remember wanting to pursue, because it seemed like you were always on that trajectory towards entrepreneur, but sort of, so, all right. So we talked about high school, you passed the one cop and boom, green light, no more cops around. Let's just cruise on home as fast as we want. As you were graduating high school, as you know, your, your, your father, um, he started that company in his 30s. So I imagine that had already happened. Um, what was the type of career that you saw for yourself and, and, you know, where'd you go to school and like, what was, what was on your mind then? And then I'm curious, like how you then made your way back to entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, it was nothing farther from what I wanted to do than to be an entrepreneur. Like I did not identify as a kid with being an entrepreneur, like somehow, and I don't, I don't know where this set, but somehow really early on in my life, like I decided I wanted, I wanted to be a doctor, right? Like really early on. Right. And I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to go to an Ivy League school and I wanted to play college football like that. That was like, that's kind of how I was wired. And, you know, from the time as early as I can remember, that was it. Right. Every Halloween costume, I dressed up like a physician. Um, my dad actually was in the medical field. So he would drag me along with them and they dropped me off in the ER and I'd hang around with the with the nurses and the doctors and learn about what was going on. So, you know, that was my path. Um, and thought like well, business, like, wow, how can business be that hard? Like what, what you ring a cash register? What's, what's that all about, dude? Like that, that's not, that's not intellectually stimulating and not changing the world. And, and that was a path. So, you know, as it turns out, you know, I got an opportunity to go, uh, go to Penn, right. And back a little bit to that, you know, small town USA to the heart of West Philly, man, like that, that I was ready for that, that different environment. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, I should have recognized it, but I got to Penn and, and, and was sitting in like early classes in the pre-med program. And I got a little bit of buyer's remorse. And I started like really questioning kind of what I wanted to do. And my wife, Michelle, who is, you know, absolutely my soulmate and partner laughs when I tell the story because she gets a kick out of the fact that I'm a little bit squeamish and I'm a little afraid of blood. So particularly my own. So like, she's like, what were you thinking? Like, what? And, and, and I don't know, I had it in my head. So pretty early on in college, I had this idea that, that, uh, that maybe the healthcare thing wasn't, uh, maybe the doctor thing wasn't the right, the right thing for me. So I had an opportunity to transition from, from the college of arts and sciences into Wharton and made that transition happen. There's a ton of stories there about, that being a lot harder than I thought I could do. And that's kind of what started, right? So kind of coming out of that experience, you know, I had to let my mom down a little bit early. So I had to go from pre-med to pre-law to business, like just to kind of ease her through that transition. Um, so, you know, I started off after college, kind of in the, after after uh, Wharton in the, in the healthcare field and loved that and lit up and kind of that delivered a little bit of that dream. And that brought me to the first time, this was all East Coast, that brought me to the first time to, to San Francisco to do my first startup in, in healthcare. What in, year was that? Uh, 92, 1992. Nice. Um, and, you know, moved into the marina, Fillmore and Union, live in the dream, kind of unbelievable place to, to be. Um, started started off in healthcare, and then the internet happened, right? Yeah. So Netscape goes public, you know, like all of this activity and excitement around digital early internet marketing. And I've said, you know, 
you know, life is some combination of planning and serendipity, right? Yeah. So found myself in the Bay Area in the hotbed of technology right at the start of the first wave of digital transformation. And I just said, you know, I, I, can't, I can't miss this opportunity. So I pivoted and went to one of the really, really early ad serving companies, the first ad serving company that became, that was ClickOver, ClickOver became ad knowledge, ad knowledge then became part of CMGI. And so the journey be began, right? In what has now ended up to be 30 years in uh, in in digital marketing, right? And wow. really kind of from the ground up, right? And got to see all of that happen. That's neat. So you're, so you're in San Francisco in the early 90s and kind of through that sort of the internet bursting onto the scene. Um, yep. Where were you when that sort of first internet bubble burst? And like, what was the, what pulled you back to Boston? Because I want to sure. talk a little bit about those early days on Newberry Street, build and compete. Yeah. So um, came to San Francisco as a single guy, right? So that first apartment on Fillmore and Union was a single guy, the, the top of the triangle. Um, met my wife, my now wife here, fell in love and started our family. Never thought we would leave, right? Like we thought we thought San Francisco is where we're going to be. And our job in the world was to convince everybody that we care about to move out here. Um, and then two things happened. We had two kids who are now adults, and we started to think about how we wanted to raise them and kind of what was important to us. And it just so happens that I had to travel 3,000 miles to fall in love with a girl from Acton, right? So, mm. you know, I, uh, so we're both, both these East Coast expats yeah. living in the marina. And, you know, we're, we're, uh, our kids are getting older. We're starting to think about kindergarten. Uh, and starting to have some trepidation about, you know, having them, well, not so much trepidation, but thinking about wanting to raise our family in context to how we were raised and getting back around their family. So that I was like that. catalyst yeah. number one. Yeah. Um, and catalyst number two was the first dot-com bubble, right? So mm -hmm. we're kind of, I was out, uh, we were, thought we're taking company public, we're filed a roadshow and then March of 2000 happened and that all came to, you know, a screeching end. and that's what, and then that's what brought me back to Boston for the first time was to kind of pack up, get our kids back East and then, you know, and then have an opportunity to join really, really early on at a company called Compete, which is where I met David Cancel and where, you know, this next, you know, piece of my life began. Really interesting. I want to double click on one thing there, which is catalyst number one, and just sort of relate to you and that for in a different part of the West Coast, but for similar reasons, that was sort of my wife and I were at like about one year into our daughter's life. We're living in LA, we're in Venice Beach. We're like, yeah, we were, we had been recruiting people to move to LA. We had had some level of success in that. Um, and we had some family around and, and then all of a sudden we started to think about just it, it's different. And just the the types of experiences that we noticed people a bit older than us, their kids were having and what kind of schools they were going to private versus public, et cetera, et cetera. And, and just what, and, and we were like, wait a second, we really missed that. Con like that, that we really, it's really interesting, Massachusetts in particular, and, and sort yeah. of, you know, to, you know, to a certain extent, I think Rhode Island is really similar, but it's a really interesting and strong place to raise uh, children and, 
Uh, and so we went back similarly and and haven't regretted it. And I remember, you know, having a lot of hesitation and, and a bit of an identity crisis with it at first, where it's like I'd travel back to LA and I'd feel and it, the West Coast would still feel like home. But I think for that this this period of time, our daughter's in, you know, she's in she's in she's in kindergarten now. Um, it's really, it's really, um, it's really, it's, it's really interesting that that was the catalyst one, um, for you. I don't know if you want to comment on that anymore or just like what it was like when you moved back and where did you live specifically? Like, where did your kids, like, where, where did you raise them in, in different areas? Cause I know that no, some moves uh, came later. Yeah, no, great question. Um, we, we, uh, we, we moved to Concord, Massachusetts, right? Mm-hmm. Like great, just a great, great community. And, and I think, we knew, you know, we had this again, you go, you, you shift back and forth, you know, small town, Tiverton, Philadelphia, Marina, right. And then back to, you know, this amazing town of Concord, Massachusetts, birthplace of the American revolution, mm-hmm. you know, the fife and drums march by our house every, you know, every Patriot's day, it was an amazing place to, to raise our family. Right. And we stayed there, right? So our kids went all through the Concord school system. So I have two, two, two children, my, my daughter, Conley, and my son, Cooper. Cooper's the younger. Um, and then we fast-forwarded 15 years after this amazing experience. And we'd always talked about coming back to San Francisco, right? And um, we dropped off Cooper at NYU in September, right? Now empty nesters, right? Come full circle. The first night uh, after we dropped... Cooper off. We were in the mosh pit at Green Day, a Green yeah. Day concert, right? And and I woke up in the morning. I'm like, man, my shoulder. Why, why are my shoulders hurting? My wife was like, you were jumping around all night in the, <laughs> in the mosh pit. I'm like, oh yeah, probably probably don't shouldn't do that again. Um, and that was September of 2017. And you know, we bought a we bought an apartment in San Francisco in October, right? Oh, and man. so it was, it, you know, you fortunate in so many ways, right? And one of the ways is we got to deliver against something that we always talked about. So we came back East, had this amazing experience, raise our family, great, great, great. Um, And then, and then had an opportunity to kind of combine this, you know, urban and suburban life. So we still own the same house in Concord. I, we get back there a ton. I'm I'm there a lot more now with Drift. Um, And then we get to drop back into this same neighborhood, same scene in San Francisco and it's like being 30 again, right? So we're running around town. We don't drive anywhere. And in fact, all the people we hang around with are from this group called the Golden Gate Mothers Group. So we're all got to know each other with kids the same age. We're all empty nesters now and just having a blast. So I get to live this bi-coastal lifestyle between the East Coast and the West Coast and really have, I'm very fortunate to be able to experience and have the best of both. That is, I'm just gonna put that is a rather romantic story. Like just in that, like you I'm fell a in love. With, heart, dude, I, I love it. So am I. It it always it always works in the end, right? <sighs> the good guy always wins in the end. That's awesome. And it, it, I'd be it, I have very my wife and I talk about it all the time. We're like, but we can end up back here. And we talk, I mean, for us, like we we spent as many weekends as we could, we spent in like San Diego and like North San Diego County, South Bay and just in general, like for us, like our version of your San Francisco is like SoCal. And we talk okay. about that. We're like, when we're done raising, you know, raising our family, like we could still end well, up if, here. And I, if I'm yeah. if I'm an indication, you can do that, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, you do the things that you do to make, you know, all the way back to my dad, to make the kinds of opportunities that you can for your family. Yeah. And, you know, we were able to deliver that, deliver against that dream. And I'm just so thankful 
for that opportunity and all of the, you know, all of the, the benefits that that creates. Like around Concord, people beep at you, they wave at you, hey coach, you know, like that, those are things that can never, never ever be replaced. Yeah. And, you know, now we have this fantastic life of, of uh, being in both places. That's beautiful. Well, next time you're in Concord, let me know and I'll, we'll, we'll get together. Um, all right, let's go back in time. So you started to scratch into getting to compete. And actually one of the questions I want to ask you, which segues us in there a bit is the, the person or event that helped shape the career path you took. And yeah. it was that early, you know, Don, Don McLagan, CEO yeah. at compete. I think that had that influence. So talk a bit about those early days at compete you know, sort of that mentor role that Don played for you. And then, you know, t talk to us about a young David Cancel and Stephen DeMarco. And I see all these names and I'm like, wow, they were all there. Like what a, what a farm system, a talent that's just done all these things for the last couple of decades. And people up and down the organization have gone off and done all really good stuff. Right. And it's just, you do have this, you know, pride of association by having the opportunity to have worked with so many great people all across all across your career. So to answer your question, so we're in 2002, you know, post.com bubble and you know the pendulum always swings, you know, too far in the other direction. So we went from this, you know, unbridled enthusiast enthusiasm of the dot, of the first dot.com bubble where, you know, all things were all needles were up and to the right. Nothing bad was ever going to happen. It was just all like the Lego, you know, the Lego song, like we're all just having a good time, right? Like it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to, you know, to the pendulum swinging the other way, which was a whole lot more conservatism coming into the market, right? A whole lot more capital got tighter, budgets got tighter, people got more conservative. So I, I had an opportunity to get exposed to compete when we were, you know, less than 20 of us, less than a million dollars in revenue. And in, in, we were on the, in the, um, the old Exeter Theater and Idea Lab building, right, on Newbury Street. And, you know, joined Compete kind of really early on, almost pre-value proposition, hmm. right? And, you know, the point of the question was, you know, who, you know, who influenced you? So at our first, really kind of our second real CEO at, at Compete was Don McLagan, right? And, you know, he has been and continues to be a friend and mentor and, you know, such good, nothing but great things to say about him. And he is a man of urban legend in the Boston area, right? Like, so I have never met anyone who's had a negative thing to say about Don McLagan and, and we still talk pretty regularly. So now his, his title is entrepreneur and poet, right? So <laughs> I think he spends his summers and Capaquitic in his in his winters in Sarasota. I must uh, meet him. World class guy. Yeah, I'm gonna have you to not meet him. him. No, yeah. I'm gonna have to meet him. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 amazing, right? And he's he's a legend because he was an early guy at like I think his first job was working for the Secretary of Defense, um, and then you know he's he was at DRI, which was kind of the first, you know, the largest economic, uh, largest non-governmental economic pro uh, data provider of, of economic data. It's a lot of a mouthful there. I was at Lotus and then was a founder at News, News Edge, kind of like an online news service before kind of internet and web browsing, right? So just an amazing, an amazing person. And that's where I first met David Cancel. So David was a founder of Compete and kind of we all, Stephen, David, Ryan Burke, Adam Guy, like it's it's like a hit list of of folks. 
all build the initial product market for for compete and along the way got to be very friendly with 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 uh, with david he wasn't a ceo back then he was very much a a technical founder um and and mcclagan like just showed me what it meant to be a ceo like he was he was the model for me of of what it meant to be a ceo because he was connected to the business he was com- he was focused on building committed relationships with people in the team and he generally cared about the people that worked in the company and he created that change of life experience for me so he saw in me something that he invested in and was able to kind of work with me to transition from being the first sales leader of a company you know then kind of chief customer officer and I was his successor so when we sold compete to WPP um, I took over the company and then ran it six years post acquisition and really integrated compete and we were the we were the digital Turks back then inside the world's largest marketing services company so you know a lot of what I learned from Don has informed kind of how I think about the world and how I think about building and leading teams would you consider yourself and Don heart-driven leaders absolutely yeah sounds yeah, yeah it's makes sense for a true romantic like yourself yeah. but it sounds like that's don that's what don is at the core and the fact that he's you know also a poet not surprised um but he he was interesting <laughs> he's a quant though too like at the end of the day he's a quant well right? that is so, well then therefore he's a unicorn because that's yeah. rare that is yeah. rare um i do see i am i am not a quant right don i am not quant. i am not a quant um i i value and appreciate quants i see tension and, and friction oftentimes at companies that are over indexing on quants or founder like quant founders that don't have the right balance at the top of the organization to sometimes facilitate and nurture the right culture um that's just my own experience and but i there's things that quants do that you you can't do without if you could be a heart-driven leader romantic that is just as dangerously a quant um, then I, I think that we found a unicorn. Um, so that's really interesting. But Don, what you need, what you really need, is probably balance, right? That's you need like, balance. You need, I think yeah. you need that you need, balance. Well, you need that. Yeah, and that's where you know, not getting that diversity, equity, inclusion come come to mind. But that like diversity comes in all shapes and sizes, and I think it's different types of people, different types of backgrounds, different types of skill sets. Um, certainly from you know different cultures. Um, that's what makes really strong winning teams these days. So yeah, I'd be, cu- I'd be curious, like, uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the next experience you had. Cause I think that the experience here is ultimately what I'm most excited about for, for such a premier company in Boston, like drift is, is they're getting, they're getting a CEO with, with, with all the experience to really lead a, like a company through this sort of modern rapidly evolving sort of digital age. Talk about the acquisition. And what, yep. how that sort of, um, what, what it was like, sort of post acquisition, and and sort of working, you know, within WPP, and then ultimately, how do you find yourself, um, like, what took you to Macro Mill, and and kind of make, you know, making your way to, which was the probably the biggest um, cultural shock of your life, which was which was moving to Japan. Yeah, 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 yeah completely. So, you know, I, I think of I think of my experience at WPP as you know, almost like another, another MBA, right? Like, so imagine, you know, we've got these, 
you know, not well understood digital guys kind of now dropping into the, again, this world's largest marketing services company back when everybody wanted more of that, more of that digital stuff. And really trying to understand one, how to build and scale a company in what is a very financially and operationally rigorous company, right? Like, so, you know, Martin, uh, Sir Martin Sorrell is all of that and then some, right? Like, you know, the amazing, amazing, amazing person. Um, you could send him a text at any time of day uh, and he would respond, right? Like amazing command of control over a very, very diverse and, and large business. So understanding how to kind of get in and navigate and drive the growth of then compete to be a hundred million dollar company and ultimately becoming uh, Miller Brown Digital was a really, really powerful lesson. And I think to some degree, what has, again, each of these experiences are formative and create inflection points for you, right? And, you know, compete with that was a very much an inflection point. Cantar WPP was very much an inflection point. You know, Macromill's inflection point and, 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 and Drift will be all that and more. Um, but that really kind of refined my ability to understand how to lead geographically diverse teams, culturally diverse teams, build the global footprint, all of that stuff, which really became an unbelievable base for me to then go on to the next phase, which is, which was Macromill, which we can talk about. So, mm-hmm. you know, understanding, I, I knew it was something special when I got invited to a WPP board dinner and they said, just kind of, kind of turn up and, and, you know, and, 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 uh, and participate in this dinner. And you walk in and it was a restaurant in the Gramercy Park Hotel. I can't remember the name of the restaurant now, but you walk in and there's like every seat has a microphone and a placard. And I looked and I, I'm like, you're looking around for your name. Like where's Scott Ernst, where's Scott Ernst? I look on one side and I see, you know, Martin's name. So, oh, like I got to sit next to Martin and I look on the other side of the table. It's like Esther Dyson. And I'm like, wow, like this is, this is pretty amazing. Right. This, and I got to hang out with them and, you know, ultimately deliver, you know, deliver what the value proposition was. So it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And, you know, Mark Reed, who's running the company now is awesome. He's absolutely the right leader for WPP and, you know, and and see great things for them going forward. And again, life-changing experience. Nice. Before we talk about Macromill, any comments on what Sir Martin's up to with S4 Capital? Yeah, what a force of nature he is, right? Yeah. So he's, you know, he's outside, like he, Martin was all about digital. So he, as as an agency holding company, he was committed. And I think, which is why Compete in some way made so much sense within that portfolio. He was absolutely committed to digital and would publish and share a proportion of revenue coming from digital at WPP really, really early on, right? And then, you know, all, you know, all of this transition stuff aside, kind of coming to S4 within months and then turning that and really kind of creating, again, amazing, right? And yeah. to have that that energy and that drive, you know, um, you can expect great things from S4 because there's the right people in those leadership positions. Yeah. All right, let's talk Japan. Like, what Japan. was that? What was that process like? Was it an easy decision? Was it a hard decision? And and sort of what you know, like ultimately, like talk you know, talk us through like the the move you know halfway around the world. Yeah, 
Um, so I remember, uh, so Macromill was a take private from Bain Capital, right? So we had this very well-run, very domestic Japanese company called Macromill that basically created the online research category in Japan, right? First company, dominant share. 30% of online research in Japan is conducted and, and driven through, through Macromill. So uh, the, Bain, the Bain, you know, thesis was classic PE thesis, which was, it was this really interesting, highly profitable company that was, had under leveraged kind of management and operating structure. And I came in as part of the take private to kind of reposition around global and digital. I'll come back to that story in a second. So, you know, I wasn't a Bain guy, right? I hadn't worked from Bain, but I knew one of the marketing operating partners, a guy named Matt Freeman, who came out of the agency world and I connected with him. And, you know, he exposed the opportunity. I can remember, again, having the first conversation, you know, with Matt and the recruiter. And I walked out out of the, my office in Concord and said my, to my wife, what do you think about Japan? She said, it sounds awesome, but I'm not going. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so I, for five years, I made, I spent a week or two in Japan every month. Um, and it was never an issue. Right. Like wow. I never let it be an issue. And it was an amazing experience. So, you know, I, I have this point of view on, you know, the best thing happens for you when you put yourself into uncomfortable situations. Mm -hmm. Right. Like so um, again, that I, we talked about this earlier, the first time you ask your wife to dance. Right. Um, the first time you get on stage to deliver a keynote address, like whatever that is, when you get those butterflies, when you get that, you know, that tension, that nervousness, it means you're stretching yourself. And in my experience, that's generally a good thing. So going to lead and be the global leader around um, taking this very successful Japanese domestic company and repositioning it around global and digital through the combination of organic growth and M&A was was all of that right so i can remember my first company presentation uh there were 800 people in the hall for kind of our october kickoff and i came to deliver a, a keynote with 800 people had the little microphones in their ears so we could do simultaneous trans uh translation and again amazing experience first thing we need to do right is kind of a line and you get a, you get a, this is a kind of a, a theme and kind of what I've done, what I do is, you know, for me, the most important thing coming in as a CEO is to align the company and the leadership around the mission and the vision of the company and create as vivid an image as you can around this envisioned future state. Yep. So, so we created this very detailed envisioned future state for Macromill that meant we we're going to be much more global, much more digital um, and aligned. And I needed it, man. Like I needed it with that cohort of, of folks more than ever, because there were kind of really two nexuses of talent in Macromill, Japanese culture and then Dutch culture. Mm. And you can't imagine two different, two different cultures slamming together with the U.S. in the middle, right? So... You know, over the course of, of our, our term, we almost doubled revenue. We added 
I think we ended up with about 2,500 people in the company. We added 1,000 employees, opened 30 new offices around the world, and took the company back to the public markets, which was also amazing. So creating the equity story, going out and delivering the investor pitches, uh, ringing the bell on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. I'm probably one of a handful of Westerners who had the opportunity to go do that. Just amazing. And the most important thing around like, all of these ideas around um, around kind of restructuring and re-energizing the team, you know, strategy is hard, culture is really harder, right? And getting the culture right is even more important. There's a great saying around, around uh, Drift that says, building great companies is 99% people and 1% everything else, right? And mm-hmm. again, similar, similar idea of what we, what we got to do there. Interesting. And actually, I kind of want to I want to jump forward to to drift. Uh, you had you had a stint at Tubular Labs, which is where you and I connected, which yeah. which could certainly call, like which, which brought you back to, to San Francisco and and sort of down. Like obviously, I think at this point we've established like when it comes to sort of that intersection of sort of market research and sort of sort of digital and analytics. Like Ben, you've been at that forefront forefront of that intersection for a while, which is where tubular sits. So we can talk about that briefly because then you, then you get that experience. Um, so, so by all means, like comment a bit on some of the, the past couple of years at tubular. And then what I'm curious about as we shift towards drift is you just hit on something really interesting at macro mill and, and just your, your general sort of approach to leadership in general, which is aligning around vision and mission yep. and, you know, sort of painting that canvas with a really clear visual of the future state. So, yep. you know, I'm really, I'm excited to kind of talk about that future state for Drift and the alignment that you're currently building in your first several months now at Drift. Um, so I know I just I just threw, threw, a, threw a bit at you. So I don't know if you want to comment a little bit about the time at Tubular and then we can kind of graduate into like, let's talk about the vision, mission and future state of Drift. Yep. So, um, Tubular, like world-class company, like just, it, you know, we firsthand knowledge about kind of what we, what we do, like kind of creating the, you know, the authority for social video. And if you're a brand and you're trying to reach a younger audience, you know, it's not through TV any, any longer. Right. And it's remarkable how many dollars kind of still flow into TV relative to the percentage of your audience who's actually there. Mm-hmm. So at Tubular, we had we have have and had the opportunity to be the authority for social video and to create a currency in a world where it's you know it it is it is still very much the wild west, mm-hmm. right? So understanding how to attract audiences across the combination of YouTube and Facebook and TikTok, like there's no other place to go. So awesome, awesome technology, great team, and on a tear. Yeah. for growing the business and just to and, comment on that yeah like just just to double click on it for a second like it is fascinating and it's like it makes so much sense that audience have flocked to all these other platforms it's just the mechanics of it are tough and tubular is just only has has spent its entire existence working on you know the individual pipes of all those platforms and then you know coalescing it all together all easier said than done and creating yeah. these standards and i think there was even that a report we did back when i was you know, doing some doing some stuff with tubular where like $13 billion of, of ad dollars minimum conservatively were just being left on the table and not being invested in social video purely just based on the lack of 
sort of standard like analytics benchmarks across platforms. And like Mike Shields, like OG digital reporter from Wall Street Journal Digiday, he's the one who wrote that report. And that had a lot of backing from a lot of prominent analysts in the market too. And I think that's what's really, I mean, for folks that don't know Tubira Labs, like that's kind of what to know is that they're addressing that huge gap and, and really making a lot of like, you know, they were fighting some headwinds there, but like really doing a good job. So, um, and the really, and, side yeah. it, right? like one is understanding the audience and then one is really understanding the creator economy, right? Which yeah. is this, it's a real deal now. Yeah. Like, Creators are publishers, deal. but they're not yeah. the same as publishers and you can't work with them the same and you can't measure them the same. Correct. <laughs> and you, you got to find them, right? And you got to know where they are. Scale. Yeah. Like, yeah. So there's a lot so, of really, really good stuff about, yeah about about tubular and you know and and so why am i not there now like 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 i asked myself because i fell in love with drift in the story with drift and you've had a relationship for a while way before right so uh before actually before i joined macromill i was the first strategic advisor for drift so i think there were six or less than 10 of us in the company and we were working out of CRV's offices in Cambridge and really kind of incubating the first idea of what Drift could become. And so I spent about six months kind of inside of the company. Uh, my first Drift email address, we spelled Drift with two Ts because cancel was too cheap to buy the real domain name. Nice. Right? So yeah, seen if, yeah. seen if it was yeah. worth it. What year was this? This was two thousand and. 14. Wow. Right? Like so eight years um, ago. Yeah. 2014, 2015. Yeah. So again, like in, you know, in, in, um, we did the same process together. So we did the first offsite with, it was cancel Elias and myself. And the three of us went to the, um, in Portsmouth, the Marriott in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Oh yeah. And had our first kind of first executive offsite. And what's cool is we built some of the pillars that are still very much part of the company today and then we had our first uh our first team offsite and i think there were eight of us in the company in an airbnb in nashville so we've we've come across this great picture in 2015 of us all around the breakfast table kind of incubating the first idea so you know i've always been close to to drift um and have been a strategic advisor i was involved with with david and elias at performable so there's history and context there so when I got the call about about um, about drift, um, I wasn't looking, wasn't wasn't thinking about doing anything other than focusing on what we, what the mission was at Tubular, and it just felt like some combination of, you know, market opportunity. The company had just been bought, uh, acquired by uh, Vista. It just all kind of felt right, right. And, and there's that serendipity. Yeah, you mentioned that serendipity earlier. Hitting you yeah. There. And I'm a planner, right? Like I, yeah. like I believe in structure and planning and all of that process. But you honor serendipitous moments. Yeah. You're a romantic. Yeah. So you honor those serendipitous moments. And here's yeah. this, these, you had also, while currently at being at the helm of tubular, like you had this incredibly unique and ideal opportunity to step into the helm, you know, at the helm of, of drift. So, so talk about, and I, talk and I wouldn't do it. That. I wouldn't do it for any other, co- I really wouldn't have yeah. done it for any other company. Right. And so. I can remember chatting with you years back. Um, and we chatted about drift, like, yeah. we, like and you, we, you chat about, you know, you talked about your relationship with David. And I think you might even have mentioned like it, whether you had mentioned it was formal or informal, like the advisory role you had played and like 
I mean, it, it's so it, it drift is prevalent enough, you know, in your mind that it, it was something that you know, it wasn't a surprise to me when I saw it. I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Like, you know, yeah. Scott's close with David and, you know, you know, so talk a little bit about that, you know, David evolving into the executive chairman role and, and sort of like wh where the company's at in this next phase and that, you know, what's the vision mission and, and sort of future state look like. Yep. Um, so I came to drift again because of that history and that context, but because of a team we have, right? Like, the uh, idea of of what Drift has created and the team that we built in place is just amazing, right? Like so, the David and Leah's commitment to DEI, going digital first right out of the gate, really basing hiring decisions based upon our leadership principles are all things that really attracted me to the team and the people, and then the market opportunity, right? Like so. This we're a, we have a monster market opportunity. We're really at the early part of the race. You know, as you know, Drift wrote the book, literally on conversational marketing, created the category of conversation marketing, right? And now we're extending that, right, into conversation cloud. So what that means is we continue to be focused on the marketing persona, the sales and marketing persona, but through the full life cycle, right? So whether you're a first time visitor to the site or you're kind of deep in the funnel or you're, you know, a you're a customer, you want a consisting, consistent and engaging experience across all those touch points. And again, that's what we're trying to deliver, humanizing that B2B process. Before Drift, it was really a company-centric process, buying process. What we have really kind of architected and been focused on is a customer-centric buying process, right? Starting kind of with the web, but getting much more omni-channel because, you know, why would you want to deal differently? Why? Well, I don't want to be handed off to when, when I become a customer. I don't want to be handed off to when I'm a different part of the part of the part of the uh the life cycle. I don't want to have to answer the same question twice. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just I just had my I went in for some a physical this week, right? And I'm still filling out the same forms that I fill out every single time. And they keep asking me the same question every single time. You shouldn't have to do that. And you shouldn't have to do that in particular in a, in a, in a, in a B2B buying experience. So what, what we're doing is we're hyper-focused on growing the company through our next phase of growth, continuing the innovation that, that we started in 2015, and really, again, extending beyond that initial marketing use case into a sales and service use case and delivering that very human, very buyer-centric experience across all the touch points. And, you know, to some degree, you know, CRM, you know, is it will always be the system of record. We're not trying to be a CRM. We're not trying to be, we're not trying to replace Salesforce, right? But what we're trying to do is create a conversational CRM, right? Again, how we started. Like every, every relationship starts with a conversation. All of that conversational data needs to be included across all that marketing stack. So when I come to the website, if I'm, an, if I'm a target ICP of the customer, I should be greeted with a different experience, right? Um, what is it? If you look at, um, let's see, I think 80% uh, of the buying process now happens online, the B2B buying process 
happens now online, right? Uh, and right in, you now only have, you know, if you're a salesperson, you're you're fi- you're part of the journey for five percent of the time. So you have to maximize those moments of truth mm-hmm. to deliver on that experience, right? So every single touch point that our customers customers have, right, needs to be maximized for that personalized experience, and 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 that's what we're really doing. That's cool. I've, I have a few questions as I'm, I'm like wrapping my head around conversation cloud. And I think at the top of the call, like we riffed back and forth on a little bit too, like it, in print, you know, sort of it, it, in principle makes sense, makes a lot of sense to me and sort of the evolution from sort of marketing towards, towards, you know, more sales enablement is, is, and, and the, the, the value and and sort of authentic conversation and, and all these little micro conversation t- touch points that exist. I'm sort of curious, like the mechanics of it a little bit and, and sort of the words that come to mind are capture versus input. Like, you know, just knowing historically from doing a lot of marketing programs with companies, it's, you know, you, you talk Salesforce, you talk HubSpot, uh, Salesforce in particular, it's definitely over indexes in that sales enablement direction. Um, there's always that issue of like input, you know, getting people to input stuff. So I'm curious, like, is part of this, like, is this, is, is this a bit of a tech play and evolving the tech to just automate the capture of these conversations and, and, and without salespeople even knowing those conversations are sort of like, you know, parsed through by an, an, an AI engine and, and sort of in, in, in organized and, and logged in, in, in files. Like, like, what does that, what does that look like? I'm totally hypothesizing, but I imagine that's the direction. Yeah. I, you know, there's a couple of things that, that kind of come out, right. It's like that marketers need to continue to adopt an always on digital engagement strategy for their buyers. Right. So Think of it in a. It's the easiest way to think about it is a is a is a retail meta, metaphor maybe right like so. Okay. Think about the collective digital properties of a brand as being their biggest store, right? And imagine walking into a store, being filled with merchandise and not being able to buy anything, or have a conversation with anyone because there's nobody in the shop. Yep. So by and large, most of the kinds of in this always on digital world that we live in now, right? You're not interacting with a B2B brand during normal business hours. So how do I get the right information at the right time when I'm researching that, right? So what I wanna do is the first time you arrive in the site, what I wanna do is earn your trust and deliver value to you through personalization based upon what you're looking for, right? That's that's kind of where it starts. So those digital experiences, those personalized experiences require a 360 degree degree view of the company, right? So all of these conversations are happening across all these different touch points. So when I, the first time I arrive, you know, first of all, I should never have to fill out a form, right? Like that is just a dead end, right? Like Mm -hmm. why should you ever have to fill out a form? Imagine going to Amazon and saying, all right, I want to buy, you know, this, I don't know, this new tennis racket and I got to fill out a form and wait for somebody to call me back. That's just fundamentally broken, right? So what I want to do is have all of that, all of those interactions automated and optimized using AI in some part to parse through all of that data, all those conversations to make sense out of them and play them back, right? So the difference between creepy and personalization is context. So we want to put the right context back, right, to that to that particular experience. So I come to the website. Now, I'm not a first-time visitor. I've downloaded a white paper. I've been to a trade show. You know, I'm coming in from an ABM campaign. All of that 
view needs to be incorporated into that profile. So again, all I care about as a buyer is an engaging, consistent experience across all those touch points. And I don't want to keep answering the same question over. I don't want to have to fill out that form again at the doctor's office that I filled out every single time I go there. Interesting. So in a, in a non-personally identifiable way, so no PII. Correct. Sort of it, contextual engine right out of the gates when someone lands on a site. And right now we're talking about text conversation. You know what's interesting? Are you familiar with iris.tv? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. They're an interesting one. They're like, I don't know if it's getting sort of like pseudo competitive or frenemy territory, but like what's interesting is Iris. So I'm starting to relate it a bit to their narrative in the market. Historically, Iris TV was embraced by publishers. So think all the publishers that have worked with tubular labs and those same publishers would basically when they for their own and operated videos. So if you land, if you choose a video to watch on usatoday.com, so a customer historically of Iris TV would be Gannett. So you yeah. pick video one, you pick, you selected that one, you self-selected it. And then based on like the Iris engine and all this contextual information, you would be like videos two through infinity would be determined based on their engine. Um, and they're kind of evolving more towards like, the customer and sort of like creating more of like context engine to sort of like utilize and leverage. Cause I'm curious, cause it, cause I just know from flirting around the AI machine learning sort of contextual space for a while, I guess what I'm getting at is how, how much is this tech that exists? And this is just part of like a reapplication of Drift's existing tech, or are you like building a new stack or like partnering or partnering with new players like an Iris to bring more context conversation into the mix? Or is that just where you've been and you're just really, and there's really what's new is leveraging it upstream into the CRM? Uh, D, all of the above, I think. All of the above. Yeah, all of yeah. the above. Right. Cool. Like, so we reimagine the modern revenue stack that kind of integrates into all these touch points, right? So the signals that we get that are coming in from, from a, from interaction with a, with a chat experience or coming in from an ABM campaign and personal landing in personal landing pages or doing voice transcription on the fly from Zoom calls and parsing out when 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 customers are asking questions about pricing or GDPR or anything else and all of the different mm variations that come from that. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's just this massive decision tree driven off of AI to make sure that we're finding the right, those, that right language and context. And again, like imagine you could transcribe on the fly, all of the, all of those conversations that are happening across the enterprise and using those to build better experiences for the buyer. That's a really positive, that's a really powerful thing. And yeah. the, the good news is, it's not theoretical, it's real, it's being delivered today and it's delivering, you know, uh, return on investment in terms of bigger pipeline, faster deal velocity, more deals closed and better experiences. Yeah. So the, you know, the, IR, the, the ROI of what we do is just remarkable, right? And we're ready for it. Like it is, it is AI has hit its prime. Right. Yeah. So a colleague of ours talks about, you know, is, is, is AI ready to go? Is AI ready for mainstream? 
Well, a buddy of mine talks about his lobster pond in Maine is using AI to maximize yield on a lobster pound, right? Yeah. Right. So why am I not using it in the marketing context? Why am I still doing things the old way? Why am I still forcing people through, you know, to fill out a form? Why am I waiting? Why am I making any buyer wait for information when it's readily available? It just needs to be delivered in the right context at the right time. Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to do. And we think that that that's changing the paradigm. It's super cool. And like, you, so it's interesting to hear the way you put it, like the voice transcription on the fly and parsing it out. So like, I'm not too far off in how I was interpreting that aspect of it. And I guess the question I have, it, one of the questions I have, I have a lot, I won't ask them all right now because I don't want to get too into the weeds, but it seems that you also have to have, be very, have a very flexible stack to support all types of modern businesses. Some that wanted, that are leveraging, that are just bait, building, you know, they have digital commerce engines and they just want to use, you know, text conversation to nurture customers. And then you have customers that have, um, that are brands that maybe have more of a white glove approach where they want humans to get involved and, and have a bit of voice support. Yep. And so then you need, so you need the voice and then, and it's not, and it's sort of like, you have this like flexible solution. It's not necessarily one size fits all. So for one customer to the next, I imagine the use cases are completely different. Yeah. So I think they're they're different, but they're pretty consistent, right? Like so okay. again, depending on where you like again, you know, if you're coming in to uh, interact with a brand and you're in the target ICP, um, you should be greeted and you should be directed to the salesperson that's covering your account, right? And you should be you you again this idea of eighty percent of the of the research is getting done online. 70% of the buyer's research has happened before they ever get to the website. And you've got, you've got a 5% window and 5% of those kind of moments of truth to deliver the value to the, to the customer. So imagine you're coming in and then, you know, a salesperson chimes in because you're a target customer. Not every customer hits a website and says, hey, I see you looking at our pricing. Can I help you something? Can I help mm -hmm. you with that? Right, because I think you hit this idea of it's human assisted, right? Because you know, spend yeah. some time at the airport, right? Yeah. And all the self-service kiosks, they only work because there's a human walking around curating and moving people around. Curating. Yeah, that was the word I was gonna use. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That so we're curating layer. those experiences yeah. at the right time, at the right moment. Again, what's really important to understand, it's from the buyer's perspective, not the seller's perspective. And that makes that's sense. pretty dramatic difference. So I guess the sort of final question on, on all this is with the uh, with this evolving mission towards conversation cloud versus conversational marketing and, and more sales enablement, what in terms of like a charter for the business in terms of like new, what what's the white space you're going after from a customer? What kind of customers do you feel like you're able to go after more in earnest? Uh, that wasn't initially intended to be a pun off your last name, but um, in earnest, like what are, what are new customers you maybe can go at that or, or customer types or category and or like partners, like, like how is this impacting, you know, the relate, you know, the relationship you have with CRMs and, or, you know, bolstering them at all. Like, I'm just curious, what are some of those key customer and partner um, goals that are attached to more conversation cloud? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot there to unpack, right? So um, I think the integrations are increasingly, uh, like we have 50 different integrations, right? Because, yep. you know, what is the architecture slide now? Like what is 10,000 companies in the architecture slide yeah, now? Too many. And, you know, each, each of those companies has specific values. So whether it's, you know, intent data or it's, you know, it's email data or it's chat data, like it, it all needs to be in, it can't be siloed. So it's full customer lifecycle omni-channel is kind of a great way to think about where we're going, kind of what we're doing. Um, and partners are a big part of that ecosystem, whether they're, you know, ISV partners or channel partners, right? We, what we need to do is, is make sure that we create a vibrant ecosystem for our customers because every MarTech stack is a little bit different, right? So we need to connect to all those and make those make those very relevant for our client. And and I think I missed one 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 question you asked. I got wiped up and no, that's good on the partners one. I'm just oh, curious no, I, I got, I got, more yeah, customers yeah. with the yeah. cloud. Yeah, with the cloud offering but or different types. We've cut our teeth in and this is what I want. We've cut our teeth in SaaS technology companies. That's the first place yeah. that we went in. We've got you know great share, great customers kind of in that in that space. Now, though, if you think about the maturation curve of different, like that's that's the first place that we started, right? Because we went pretty quickly from a world with digital to a digital first world. And it all started with kind of SaaS technology companies. That's right. Yeah. But we recognize that now, now those companies that started with that first marketing journey are now going out kind of omni-channel full life cycle. Other industries are now kind of entering in. So what you'll see from us more and more is more vertical specialization, right? And going after um, uh, spaces like manufacturing and financial services and uh, professional services as being placed that we can bring more value and really kind of get those customers on that maturation curve so that they can start to deliver the kind of value that we're seeing from our core ICP, mm -hmm. which is, you know, SaaS technology companies. Yeah. Well, really, really, really fascinating. And thank you for diving down the rabbit hole with me, listeners, too. Um, we'll have to we'll have to continue this conversation maybe later next time you're uh, visiting Concord and hanging out at Drift in Boston. And, and I'm actually curious, before we get to the final question, how are the, you know, what's a little bit of the comparison from like, you know, over over your time in Boston and San Francisco, um, similarities, differences, like you know, value and sort of a bit, having a bit of a presence in both, I think is is pretty obvious. But I'm just curious, like just general thoughts on the two. Yeah, so I think the delta between the startup community on the West Coast and the East Coast is much narrower than it than it used to be, right? Um, I think what we have now is, you know, in, 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 I think we spent a lot of our time kind of in the early 2000s with a little bit of our chip on our shoulder in Boston, right? Wanting to be the next Silicon Valley, right? And the reality is the Valley is a very unique and different place for a whole lot of different reasons. Now, some of those, some of that disparity has changed, I think, because you know, we're now in a digital first world. So we're all much more remote. We're much more around. But when, you know, the similarities like between Boston and the West Coast kind of active ecosystem, great hub for talent. But this idea of, you know, digital first is creating both opportunities and challenges for companies on both on, on both sides. 
the Bay Area is still a little, there's like more activity. There's a an old saying that you could change your job and not change your carpool. And that's still very much part of here. Like it is all technology here. And just the pace and the number of deals that are going down is uh, is uh, is is a little bit different. But you know, and and I think the the last thing that's common it's it's a race for talent everywhere. Everywhere, right? like, yeah. Talent is scarcer than capital, right? And and uh, and I think we need to to recognize and back to the point. It's ninety nine percent people and in one percent everything else. So, yeah. you know, I think from Boston tech scene having a chip on her shoulder, I think we're over that. And and I think there's some things that are really really good about the Boston ecosystem um, that make it a great place to start a company. So start a company Boston, start a company in 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 uh, in the Bay Area, start a company. Remember, yeah, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Put yourself in in that situation where you're extending yourself a little bit beyond where you thought you might get to. Good stuff's gonna happen, brother. Yeah, there you go. It's like start a company in Boston or San Francisco because those headquarters are huge. And then maybe have like a satellite office in Charleston, South Carolina or somewhere where a lot of people have moved to. Because it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how um, it, this all unfolds, the the, the talent, um, the battle for talent. And, and it, I don't think there's like a winning strategy yet, but I'm really fascinated by the types of strategies that may win and the the word hybrid comes to mind, but not so much showing up for work hybrid, but like hybrid office approach, like yeah, an office in this hub. Yeah. It's, a, it's gotta be intentional collaboration, right? Yeah. Like, so I think uh, there's just no replacement for human interaction and, and that needs to be intentional. So we've created these at Drift, we've created conversation spaces, right? And, you know, those are places to have facilitated interactions episodically across the organization nice. because you know there's great things about a remote first culture there's there's great things about an in-office culture and the reality is we're never going to put that genie back in the bottle uh and we need to kind of and we're all still figuring it out right what's the yeah. right balance um in different you know different employee cohorts are going to be you know more or less challenged by by being uh digital first but it also like we're we're much more geographically diverse than we have ever been before. Yeah. And again, that's that's an opportunity and a challenge. Totally. Final question. Challenge yes. for the listeners. Just what's your what's your challenge for listeners today? So um I, you know, maybe to some degree I kind of already exposed the headline, but like find that, find that one experiment. Like do something before the end of the year. And it does, it can be personal, it can be professional, it doesn't happen. But like I, I don't know, like and maybe it's maybe it's my age and my perspective, but just such great things happen by taking a chance, right? So my three words of my my three points of advice to, to anybody are going to be really like find your passion, like figure out what you want to do. You got to be the you got to want to be the best of the world to succeed at anything you want, right? So find your passion, invest in yourself, right? So you need to be in charge of your own career development. Like don't outsource your career de development to your manager, right? It's more important to you than it is to your manager, how you succeed. And last and most important, get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. So take that mantra into the end of the year, find something that gets you in that and find find the professional growth that that creates for you, again, either personally or professionally. Well said.
Thank you, Scott. That's awesome. And could, like really, I think really good note to end this it on. This has been really, really fun. Yeah. Wow, the time has flown by. This has been a blast. I know, it's been a blast. Thank you. Let, let me know uh, next time you're in Boston. We'll try to get together. Really appreciate you taking all the time today. Excited to share this with the community. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers, everyone. All right. Cheers, Bye. Boston.